Thanks, Dad. And I heard James did a good job for us last week. Thankful for that. And uh, I don't see him this morning, but somewhere. James, wherever you are, thank you. And I really appreciate how many men and women of this congregation are really gifted speakers and teachers. And we need to find ways to use these gifts and encourage one another in our gifts and build up the body of Christ, all of its different parts, from Sunday school to worship to small groups to ladies' Bible classes, from the sound booth to the pulpit. There are all kinds of good things going on, and uh, I'm thankful for that. So we're continuing our series in the kingdom of God, and uh, we left off that last week. Alicia and I got to go to this uh, ministry couples retreat, and uh, it was a really blessing for us. We get to spend time with, with friends. Some of them have known me since high school, and uh, you are getting the benefit of a lot of good discipleship, because I'm not the same handful I used to be back then. Uh, But this series on the kingdom of God, it's pretty broad, and we're just going to keep chipping away at it, and I'm just having a ball searching for the fingerprints of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And the more I look at the content, the biblical content, the more my concept of God's kingdom, it just keeps growing because really the scope of his kingdom, it entails his entire interaction with human beings throughout history, Uh, bringing us knowledge, showing us how to live, uh, teaching us things, reigning over us. And so the the kingdom of God, it really is the meta-narrative running from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, And it runs beyond the Bible, too. This is the reality of our lives. So three weeks ago, we talked about the kingdom of God in Torah, and uh, there are certain seeds of kingdom thinking that were present all the way back into Genesis sometimes. This idea of a land flowing with milk and honey promised by God, where one day we will become a mighty nation. This is the, there were nomads around the Bedouin fire. Someday God will do this. Someday he will. And so there was this expectation of this kingdom. Uh, God will protect us and make us great. We will live in unimagined peace and plenty. And so that's some of the ideas that were being born in the, in the Hebrew soul. And then this continued to develop. The kingdom of God and the conquest was there. Uh, the idea of judges uh, who were charismatic leaders raised up for the hour, who uh, were special servants on behalf of their king. Uh, the Lord, and then this early ideas of monarchy, and so the changes that came with monarchy. Uh, So David, uh, in David, not only is there this consolidation of power in a more formalized monarchy, but now the leadership of the Hebrew nation, it's based more on um, heredity than a special anointing of the Spirit. And I'm looking for that phrase that used to be used up until David quite often before that, the Spirit of the Lord and the, 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 the Spirit coming on someone in power. And after 
uh, David, I don't find that phrase coming on the Lord, uh, the Spirit of the Lord coming on someone in power until a much later time. And then it's in the prophets as well. So some of the things that we looked at that were uh, mile markers of the kingdom of God in the conquest judges and early monarchy, there was an actual realm that they have now, a land of their own. And even at this early time, people are realizing there are some things happening in this land that are clearly not the will of God. And so how do we reconcile that? And so there's a cycle that they enter into. Uh, when they're faithful, they thrive. And when they're sinful, they are oppressed. And when they're oppressed, they cry out to the Lord who raises up a charismatic leader with the special anointing of the Holy Spirit to bring deliverance to the people. So there's this whole cycle over and over and over and over again in the judges. And then the Israelites, they decide that they want a king and they reject God as their direct ruler over them. And it's kind of a, I think, a key kingdom passage in 1 Samuel 8. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And there's implications for all of this. And they soon discover that having a human king, it doesn't necessarily fix all their problems. Instead, it brings a whole other set of problems along. And David is the last leader to be chosen by this special outpouring of the Spirit. And from then on, all of these rulers and all of these kings, they're chosen by heredity or um, coups or whatever the, the, the kind of in, in more human terms. So today we kind of move on from this and we're talking about the kingdom of God in the time of the prophets. And really, in these next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at this. This is a kingdom that is coming under judgment. They have not lived up to their, part, their side of the bargain, basically, the Jewish nation. They were meant to be a light to the nations, and they were failing in this regard. They were meant to keep covenant loyalty and faithfulness to God. And they fail spectacularly in this regard. Okay, and so by the time of the kings of Judah and Israel, the majority of people were identifying the kingdom of God with that national state. And over time, the mingling of religion and state government, it tends to get very messy. It tends to get messy, and uh, the state, it supports religion. It, you have professional priests and prophets, uh, and then religion kind of exists to prop up and bless the state, provide ritual and provide the assurance of blessing to protect the state from internal and external threats. And so during this time of prophets, there's a whole lot of false prophets that come that are kind of the yes man to the king and the state and all that the state and the cult is doing. And so they take half-truths, and there's kernels of truth in all of these things. 
but they become twisted and hearts go astray in this kind of environment. So some of the half-truths of the false prophets that they were saying, the state is God's kingdom. The state at its best can be in God's kingdom. But they had equated, hey, this is the totality of God's will is the Jewish state, is the kingdom of Judah or Israel. We are God's chosen people. We give God ritual and sacrifices. We have the right way. We have the correct doctrine. We do things the right way. We have God's chosen son as the king over us. Therefore, God will eternally defend the state. And it doesn't really matter almost what we do because these are irrevocable promises of God. And in this kind of way of thinking, uh, all of the purposes of God in history are equated with the state and the existing order. Uh, but those are games that humans play. And uh, trying to build a box for God is not an easy thing. Uh, but we still do it to this very day. And so what is developing in Israel at this time is what I would call an early form of the sin of presumption presuming against the grace of God. We presume that we have God's grace for this, 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 and this reason. Therefore, God just wants to bless us, and we can do no wrong. And Paul has to deal with this kind of thinking even in the early church. Uh, and in Romans 6, Paul deals with this question explicitly as he's dealing with the kind of games that we as humans will play. And so he says this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that so that grace may increase? God's grace is just there anyway. He just, God is love. Do whatever you want, honey. He says, Megnoito. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We just keep sinning that grace is there. And we, it's the sin of presumptuous, uh, presumption. And so this sin of presumption, it still continues with us today. And again, I'm painting in broad strokes, but here's some ways that I see it in uh, legalistic terms and in more progressive terms. And uh, I just put these out there, both of these kind of extremes, because I'm an equal opportunity offender from this pulpit. And... Uh, the legalistic terms, maybe, would be more along the lines of, we are the ones who have the correct doctrine. We are the, we are the ones who really know. We're the ones who really know. After all, we are the Lord's church. We are the Lord's church. You know, there may be a lot of truth there. But there are a lot of people who have been shut out of the kingdom of God because of the way Christians have handled the truth in condescending and judgmental kind of tones that does not create opportunities for recognizing the way that God has been at work in people's lives and uh, that his purposes go beyond what happens here in these four walls and I'm not trying to upset you when I say that the Church of Christ, it is a lot bigger than the Churches of Christ. Uh, 
And you know what's bigger than the churches of Christ universal? The kingdom of God is bigger than that. And I want to be clear uh, about that because there's some really bad teaching out there that says the church is the kingdom of God. They are one and the same. And there's no distinction between the two. From what I can gather looking at this and in my study, that kind of teaching is heresy. Because there's always been things happening in the church that are clearly not the will of God. The church at its very best can participate in and step into the kingdom of God where everything that is done in that kingdom is perfect and is his will. And I don't think that has to be threatening to us. I think that this can open our eyes to the possibility that God is at work in a lot of places and situations that we're not even aware of. Can you appreciate that? A God who uses pagans even at times. He calls uh, uh, Cyrus his shepherd. Uh, Cyrus of Persia, who didn't even know the Lord or acknowledge him. And yet God is using him for his purposes throughout history. God is big. His kingdom is big. The invitation for us is to participate in that kingdom, to bring that kingdom to bear on the situations around us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We invite that into the reality of our own hearts and in this church. All right, so that's maybe a little bit more of the sin of presumption in legalistic terms. Uh, More progressive terms, it's more games like this. God just wants me to be happy. God is really just the senile kind of old guy in heaven floating around on clouds with a big beard, kind of like Santa Claus. Do whatever you want. It's okay. And we kind of have a transactional relationship with this God. If I, if I pay my prayers, if I pay my due diligence, if I come, if I attend, then God is just going to pour down the blessings and it becomes almost like this gross transactional kind of relationship where we put our, our spiritual coins in this, the heavenly venting machine and wait for the blessings to come down. And we reduce the will of God, and we're going to see this especially next week, God's will and what his reign is and his kingdom is, it somehow becomes equated to things relating to my own comfort, my own safety, my ever-growing 401k, whatever. In that kind of kingdom thinking, this kind of perverted religion, sin's not that big of a deal. Because isn't God love anyway? Doesn't he just want me to be happy and comfortable and X, Y, Z? It's the kind of religion that poo-poo's sin. And it becomes about setting me free from my own anxiety so that I can have this psycho-spiritual health perfection and... Uh, I can be fully aware and self-actualize. 
I just need to remove myself from these people in this situation because they're a little toxic. They're not good for me. The sin of presumption. You know, I think the Lord knows what he's doing. The people he puts together in his local expressions of a church. There's always a few grits of sand in there in the oyster to create the pearls. And as we learn to love each other, not in this ideal picture of what the church would be is perfect, as we learn to deal with the reality really before us, that's, that's where the magic happens with the Holy Spirit. That's where we really learn to love See, we just got to own the ways that we're always trying to crawl off the cross of Christ. Because really the invitation that he gives us is not for our self-actualization, not for our own comfort, not for our... He invites us to be a living sacrifice and to daily take up a cross and follow him. That is his invitation. And we try to... That's, again, a game we play. So I, I take the time to point this out because I want you to see that the kingdom issues that they're dealing, the prophets are dealing with, they're issues of the human heart that are very much relevant and they're alive today. And so you have these external threats that are being dealt with by Elijah. The paganism, it's a direct threat. It's a competition of kingdoms if you will. In the time of the prophet Elijah, there were all kinds of external threats to faithfulness. So we're, we're going to look at the prophets of Baal and of Asherah. And then later on next week, Lord willing, we'll begin to look at some of these internal threats as well, a broken system that Amos comes and critiques, where they are vigorous in their ritual. And yet there's no justice. And there's a big division between the haves and the have-nots. A religion that had become blind to the needs of the poor and of those who don't have access to certain resources, certain kinds of justice. So we'll look at that. But this Elijah story for today, if you have a Bible, you can kind of start skimming through that. First Kings chapter 16 and following is the content of that. But I'm going to assume that our Sunday school programs have done a lot of the groundwork that we need through years and years of you being a disciple. And you can just pick up a Bible and read this later. That uh, you're going to know a lot of these stories. So in, in 1 Kings 16, you have a pagan queen uh, a lady named Jezebel, who is nothing short than a missionary for pagan gods. She's zealous for pagan religion. And uh, uh, she was a missionary for the prophet Baal, and it's a, a cult that was concerned with fertility ritual. Um, they're concerned with the fertility of the soil, the fertility of beasts, the fertility of people. Uh, they, and they tried to find ways 
to get the gods to act, to produce fertility. That's all what Baal is about. And so they have male and female prostitutes involving people in orgiastic rituals and all kinds of gross, perverse filthiness. And it was a religion that made no moral demands of any kind. Just do whatever feels good, whatever floats your boat. It doesn't matter. Nothing beyond pure animal instinct. And it destroys people's lives. And it destroys community. And God raises up prophets who speak fire and condemnation against a system like this that has so co-opted the people of God. Elijah comes to confront the pagan state of King Ahab, who was supposed to be a king representing God and his pagan queen and her pagan god. He came to call people back to repentance and back into a relationship with the Lord. And so you have this showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. That says the ones who eat at Jezebel's table. All these priests who are supported there by the state. See, the state doesn't always support the right things or the right systems or the right people. In 1 Kings 18, there's this dramatic display of the power of God and fire coming down from heaven. And then Elijah takes advantage of this situation and they grab all of those pagan priests. 850 of them are slaughtered. Not one escapes. And then you, f- you read about this blood purge later on as well. Um, 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10, uh, the story of Jehu and this blood purge that happens in Israel. We just got to cut this problem out of there. But a question I had to ask as I was wrestling with these texts this week. Did that blood purge make Israel into God's kingdom once again? Did that blood purge make Israel into God's kingdom once again? Had the sword restored Israel to her national identity as the people of God? Did killing a bunch of pagan priests get rid of paganism? See, I think God used these mighty acts and these dramatic outpourings of fireworks from heaven to call people to repentance. There's no doubt about that, to help wake them up. But I think the story of Israel and the prophets, it shows something of the magnitude and and pervasiveness of evil in the human heart. And even in the church today, we are tempted to think things like, if I could just get rid of the problem, then everything will be okay. 
You ever, I, I'm tempted to think that way. Because I think I know what the problem is. If we could just get rid of fill in the blank, and we all fill it in with different things, if we just had the right preacher, we had the right elders, if we had better organizations, better <clears throat> gifting for this, that, or other role, better strategy, if we could just get rid of this troublemaker. This is, this is so-and-so who's the complainer. If we could just get rid of this family who is, um, they just don't play well with others. They're always causing problems. They're always difficult. If someone's going to be difficult, it's them. If we just had better participation from the lazy, lethargic, lukewarm majority, then everything will be okay. And even though I feel tempted in these terms, I still, I think, realize some small part of me, God could give me everything I ask for in calling down fire from heaven, and the real problems would still not be fixed. I can eliminate the problem, but still not fix what's broken in my own heart. And so we have this phenomena played out in a thousand different ways today. And people constantly run from church to church to church. It's the grass is greener wherever kind of mentality. And the acedia in their own hearts, the brokenness in their own hearts, it's never addressed. The restlessness, the the anger, whatever it is, that vice that lives in people's hearts. Jesus even had to deal with this kind of thinking with his own disciples. His own disciples wanted Elijah kinds of solutions to their problems. So this is a great story in Luke. As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So some, again, I'm assuming you know about the way Jews felt about Samaritans and the way Samaritans felt about Jews. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord... Do you want us to call down fire from heaven, call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Where did they get this idea? It's from the story of Elijah. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. James and John are ready to see uh, you know, they're, they're ready to go Elijah on these Samaritans. Those dirty Samaritans. Give them what they deserve. We're going to teach them a lesson, and then let's get rid of the problem. You know, it's not for no reason in Mark 3 that Jesus calls James and John the sons of thunder. These guys are ready for some thunder. See, disciples of Jesus Christ... And all the way back 
to the original stories we're reading with the prophets. Everyone wants the kingdom of God to come with Elijah kinds of power. Elijah kinds of fireworks. But why doesn't Jesus do that? Jesus knows the limits of Elijah-like solutions. And it took the disciples years and years of teaching and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit before they understand that in fact Jesus Christ is bringing a power greater than consuming fire from heaven. Greater than what Elijah brought. See, kingdom power exercised by Elijah, it had its place in this time. It eliminates the enemies. It gets rid of the external problem. But the kingdom power exercised by Jesus, it has the ability to turn my enemy into my brother. The ability to turn my enemy into my brother. Because the power of Jesus doesn't just get rid of the external uh, problem. The power of Jesus, he can deal with the human heart. And I think there are echoes of the gentle way of Jesus, even that find, them, find an expression of some sort in the Elijah story with the power of Elijah and what he's doing there. And so we're going to pick up uh, in 1 Kings again. When Elijah, after the prophets of Baal are all slaughtered, and the word comes that Jezebel is going to hunt you down, and you're out of here, buddy. The state has completely been co-opted. The state has turned against. And the Lord said, and so he flees, and then he goes to this Mount Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. Elijah had just seen a whole lot of fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. I think the story of Elijah here, it does teach us a lesson about what the kingdom of God is like. For he who has ears, let him hear, and who has eyes to perceive and a heart to perceive these things, let him understand now. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the gentle whisper of God. The kingdom of God it comes to us like a gentle whisper. 
And I know what it's like to desire fire from heaven to come down and consume my enemies to get rid of this problem or these problem things or these problem people. To remove the obstacle I perceive in front of me. But Elijah does all of these things in spectacular form with the power of God. And the problems are still there. He's running for his life. He's fearful. He's spent. He thinks he's done. Worse than that, he thinks he's all alone. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord goes on to give Elijah more work to do. He thought it was done. It's not done. You have more work to do, and this is it. And then the Lord God says this to him. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Dad, you can come up here. Imagine Elijah's surprise to discover he's not alone. He's not the only game in town. Elijah is just number 7,001 of those who belong to God, the God who comes to us as a gentle whisper whose kingdom comes as a gentle whisper, whose reign is like a gentle whisper in righteous hearts, who refuse to bow down to Baal, whose mouths refuse to kiss him. See, Elijah is a, a fireworks guy, and fireworks guys have a special purpose and a special place. But the bigger part of what God is doing is a quiet work in the hearts of 7,000 people who refuse to sin, hearts that refuse to forsake the Lord their God. And I would say still today, that's the bigger part of what he does in our lives and in our church. We all want the fireworks. Fireworks come and go. But the bigger work is the gentle whisper that changes hearts, it creates community, it grows humility, because it reflects the humility of the heart of our God. Jesus Christ, the gentle whisper of God, his word continues to whisper in our hearts to this day. That whisper continues to have real power to change lives, real power to turn enemies even into brothers or sisters, to kindle hope in a hopeless world. And this is a hopeless world we're in. And we see that expressed and alive in the kingdom of God and in words like this from Jesus, fear not, little flock. Are we not a little flock here at the Eugene Church of Christ? 
It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's stand and sing together.